It's a joy this Sunday morning for Dan and I to share again in this series called Let's Break the Rules. And it actually started a number of weeks ago when Dan shared his story about the six rules that he grew up under. These six rules were don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't think, don't choose, don't change. And then he was asked to develop a series of messages to go deeper on these subjects. Well, I asked Dan Reinhardt to join me in this venture, and I'm very grateful for the teamwork that we have. For our first message, we explored what both the Old and New Testaments say about living by the rules. We arrived at the conclusion that Jesus condensed the entire Old Testament down to just two rules, to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Beyond that, we noted that living out a rules-based faith will be inadequate in our quest to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, because it's not about the rules, it's about relationship. That's so true. And uh, we began by dismantling that very first one, don't talk. And it's because unless we're willing to talk, nothing else will change. So we have to start with that one. We have to start talking about things that matter. And then the very next thing we talked about was recognizing our emotions and realizing that we have to come out from hiding and to be honest about what's going on in our heart and the, the mechanism that God's given us to let us know what's going on deep inside is our emotions. They're like a dashboard to just alert us what's going on deep inside. And so while we don't live by emotions, they are a, a, a tool or a gift that help us to know how to speak about our heart. Now we go into more detail on this in the past messages. So if you would like to know more about those things, look back in the series here. God knows that when he puts his imprint of his, of his own image right on us, he wants us to be fully alive. He wants us to be people who are freely able to talk about things that matter, that are able to be aware of what's registering in their heart about how they're feeling about things, and then about being together with people in real community. And that brings us to this third subject, and that is, trust. In this journey of learning about talking and feeling and trusting, if you've heard my story and these messages so far, you've noticed I'm rather freely sharing stories of my journey relating to my parents. I trust these stories. I, I share these stories at the strong request of friends who tell me these stories are helping them deal with their very similar struggles. Both of my parents have passed on but I've committed myself to honoring them to my dying day. I dearly loved my dad and mom. I have never experienced a rebellious phase in my growing up years. Part of my journey of honoring them is to reflect on some life lessons, then apply these life lessons to my own journey, and then share so others can learn. So my passion for learning and for sharing is further fueled by the reality that over the past six decades, I've had a front row seat to watching 52 marriages of my family, that's my parents, my siblings, the next two generations, result in 37 divorces. The relational pain in my extended family is excruciating. It's very real and cannot be ignored. I don't blame any one person for this reality, but I'm suggesting there's a very direct link between marriage train wrecks and these rules, starting with the rules of don't talk, don't feel, don't trust. 
difficult situations need to be conveyed with honesty, with being real, even if it goes against everything we were taught, such as the notion that all negative talk is rooted in bitterness or gossip. If you were raised with this belief, this series will likely have some uncomfortable moments for you. In this series of messages, we are saying, people, we don't need to do relationships in train wreck mode, in death mode. There's a whole nother way, the way of life. And it starts with taking a good look at the rules that are damaging our lives, our marriages, our family, our careers, and even our churches. God has a whole lot to say about personhood. And this morning, it's time to look at what he says about trust. And you know, this myth, this uh, subject of trust is absolutely crucial. It's common to every individual, every relationship, every family, every team, every organization, every church, every nation, and even a civilization throughout the world that if we lose trust, it can destroy the most powerful government, the most intimate relationship, the healthiest church, the most influential leadership, the deepest love can be broken amazingly fast when trust is broken. And on the other side of that, if it's properly developed, this is the one thing that has the potential to create such unparalleled success and fulfillment in our life. So Dan and I are both agreed here that this is the least understood and perhaps the most neglected issue in the 21st century. And this is this issue of trust that we're diving into today. We're defining trust as confidence in another person. The opposite of trust would be distrust or suspicion. When we trust people, we express confidence in them. When we distrust them, we're suspicious of them. And our experiences are what show us the difference. Now, we can talk about high trust experiences. For example, in the scriptures there, God really trusted Adam when he said, Adam, Here's all the animals I've created. Now you name them. And it says in Genesis there, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. God totally trusted him to do it. And then Abraham really trusted God when he departed from his hometown, Haran, and went to the land of Canaan. He didn't even know where he was going. He just trusted God and off he went. And then there's a story in the Old Testament of Prince Jonathan, who stripped off his robe and gave that, his, his, his uh, ceremonial robe and his armor, gave it to the shepherd named David and trusted him in this covenant of friendship, even though there was a huge difference in their socioeconomic differences between them. They trusted each other. And then David himself gives an amazing story uh, uh, through his life where he gathered 30-plus uh, mighty men around him. And these actually were men who started off of being trust breakers and lawbreakers, but he believed in them and he trusted them and they responded back in trust. And it was in that environment of the giving and taking of trust that these lawbreakers were turned into mighty men. And then of course there was Jesus who trusted his 12 disciples with his entire mission. Can you imagine? And in that last supper, he, he uh, exposed himself and his heart to them in ways like never before. And he called them friends. 
In fact, he spelled out the difference between a servant and a friend. And a friend is, he said, a servant does not know his master's business, but a friend is someone with whom I share everything. And Jesus opened his heart to them in a very transparent way, even in his most vulnerable moment. But at that point, we see where there's the risk in trust because one of his inner circle there at that little private meal used private information to betray him. And Judas went out and betrayed Jesus with that trust. Oh, that was painful. But Jesus did not flinch. He came to build trust again. And so he continued on, even though he felt the pain of that uh, betrayal of trust there. Well, everyone watching us knows firsthand what it's like to lose trust. You've either lost trust yourself or you've seen other people lose trust. The most vivid story of how trust was lost in the course of my journey was watching the 39-year marriage of my parents. I mentioned a few weeks ago in my story that in the beginning of my 13th year of life, dad told me, Dan, whatever you end up doing in life, be sure you focused on helping people. Since I'm confident both my parents are in heaven today, I have no doubt today whatsoever that they would want me, that they would want me to share from their journey this life lesson their marriage has been to me. I'm sure all my siblings would agree that our parents struggled with severe trust issues during their 39 years of marriage. I've attempted to draw a pair of diagrams of how their marriage helped illustrate uh, how trust eventually goes bankrupt. Please bear with me. This may not be easy to listen to, and my father will not be the hero of this story. Here's how their marriage worked. I asked mom one day why she married dad. She said she married dad to try to help him do relationships better since she noticed that he struggled in some ways with knowing how to relate to people. Our family was very unsettled. The first 12 years of their marriage, they lived in 10 different places. Things in the house would be fine for a while, then there would be increased tension. This tension would be caused by a variety of things, but the main reason the tension for the tension is dad fell out of control. He wanted a perfect wife and perfect kids, and mom and us kids failed repeatedly to be perfect. Mom's tears were always a major threat to dad. A couple of times in my childhood, mom disclosed to me she felt like she was dying inside. I understood her comment only in the physical realm. I had no awareness of emotions other than fear. For the first 20 years, dad and mom were stuck in a crazy cycle that looked like this. Their relationship went round and round. There would be tension with dad fully believing mom was the problem. Eventually, there'd be a trigger blow up resulting in bruises on mom's arm or dad sending mom into a closet, telling her to shut the door and stay there till he said it was okay to come out. This would be followed by a honeymoon phase with an atmosphere of calmness. The honeymoon was intended to restore dad's perception of order, but this was only an illusion. The physical bruises finally stopped in their 10th year of marriage when mom decided to disclose to her mother-in-law what the bruises looked like. Dad's mom simply had a brief, brief crucial conversation with dad and told him to stop it, and he never hit mom again. But the crazy cycle continued on till their 19th and 20 year, 20th year, 
when dad had an affair. At this point, dad's marriage trust account became publicly bankrupt, but he would be the last one to recognize it or admit it. For the, last 19, for the next 19 years, their marriage looked like this. The same cycle, but with no honeymoon, only tension with underlying manipulation and the periodic trigger and blow up. They changed churches, eventually moving to a different state, thinking maybe they could have a fresh start. However, dad believed he only needed to ask God for forgiveness, not anyone else. And for this entire second half of their marriage, dad's infidelity continuously hung in the air to be privately talked about regularly by the children still living at home. Dad had no comprehension of bankrupt relationships. In their 32nd year of marriage, mom read Dr. James Dobson's new book, Love Must Be Tough. She made the mistake of letting it lay out on the table in plain sight. Dad noticed it, renamed it Love Must Be Hate, then tore it up, threw it in the wastebasket. Mom bought another copy and privately finished reading it. God used this book in mom's life to give her a new understanding of relationships. And for the first time in her marriage, she began viewing herself as worthy of respect and dignity. Six years later, a series of events happened suddenly in the house, prompting mom to call 911. That's when mom moved out, getting her own apartment, out of great fear of dad. For the next three months, dad showed signs he was willing to face reality and change, but eventually he decided it was way too much work, and he returned to his firm belief that everyone else was the problem. Mom filed for divorce in their 39th year, telling me she wasn't willing to pretend any longer. She was no longer willing to be a slave. With dad's emotions entirely shut down, he seemed to have infinite capacity to pretend that everything was fine. The vast majority of my attempts to dialogue with dad after the divorce would result in him pushing me away with the same four words, just forget the past. This pattern continued to his dying day, 26 years after his divorce. Wow, that's, that's a very tragic story. But uh, Dan, thank you for sharing it because I think it is a mirror for many other people who have maybe something similar happening in their life. And boy, is it helpful to be able to hear someone else talk about it. But as I listen to the story and um, think about the principles that I can learn from it or we can learn from it, there's at least three that kind of stand out. First of all is that um, trust is kind of like bankruptcy. How do you go bankrupt? Well, slowly and then suddenly. So there was a slow deterioration over time and then there was a sudden break. That's description of a breaking of trust. Mm -hmm. The second thing that comes clear in your story is that when you're grabbing for power instead of giving it away or sharing it away, it actually diminishes power. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, we can read there where Jesus was talking about this whole issue of authority and power. And he said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So when it comes to relationships, when we grab power, it actually diminishes power. Mm. When we share it, it actually gets stronger and the relationships get healthier. Mm. Well, the third thing that comes out of your story, Dan, is that rebuilding this trust is impossible if we don't start talking and mm. feeling and learning how to trust again. Mm. So scripture has lots of stories of broken trust in it. Stories like uh, King Saul, who asked David, who was his head military guy, to come and play the harp and have a concert with him. In this private setting, Saul took a spear and tried to kill David. And David is amazingly magnanimous. He still wants to trust back, even with that violation. And there's another time when Saul tried a second time to kill him. But this time, Dave, David had to run and flee for his life. And for the next 15 years, he was a fugitive from Saul's hatred. And yet in that time, in those 15 years, David would respect Saul as the king. And even though he had a chance to kill him, he wouldn't. He said, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. But he couldn't trust him. So he had to stay away. And he was exhibiting this amazing uh, understanding about human relationships that there's a difference between uh, being able to really trust someone and still respect them in the midst of that distrust. Well, in the New Testament, there's another story that is a descriptor of trust being broken. And this time, it was the trust that Jesus extended to his disciples and they broke it. And a most dramatic one, besides Judas, is Peter, who denied Jesus three times. So in the painful stories that I've just reiterated here in the scriptures, the question comes up, well then, who do you trust? Like, how, how do you know who to trust? And there's dangers about labeling people, but the scriptures do give us a clue in the book of Psalms and Proverbs, especially Proverbs. Um, the scripture describes three general kinds of people, three categories. There are wise people, and there are foolish people, and then there are evil people. So Dan, tell us more about that. Uh, you know, Dan, it occurs to me, we cannot deal with everyone in the same way. If we try to deal with a foolish person in the same way we deal with a wise person, he'll drive us crazy. If we deal with an evil person, at all, we may lose our life or our family. Relating to those who are not wise will cause us more and more trouble if we continue to try giving them feedback so they can change, so they can mature. If we can identify these three types of people, it'll give us some guidance on who we can trust. So how do wise people respond to truth? Proverbs 1.5, a wise person will hear and increase learning. When a wise person sees the light, they take it in, they make adjustments. When you give wise people feedback, they embrace it positively. Wise people own their performance, their issues, their struggles. They take responsibility for them without excuses or blame. Wise people show remorse over their shortcomings or mistakes. Wise people empathize and express concern about the consequences of their attitudes and their behavior on others. So here's the contrast then with foolish people. The Bible describes them in Proverbs 1, 7. 
that fools despise wisdom and knowledge. And in Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The foolish person tries to adjust truth to fit him so he doesn't have to adjust his life to fit the truth. A fool thinks they're never wrong. Someone else is wrong. In fact, conversation with foolish people creates alienation. In fact, sometimes more conflict. Mm -hmm. Foolish people have little or no awareness or concern for the pain or frustration they cause others. They seem oblivious to the collateral damage they cause. Foolish people see themselves as the victim and view those who confront them as persecutors for pointing out the problem. And then thirdly, how do evil people respond to truth? Well, they seek to destroy other people so that we need to do whatever we have to do with these kind of people to protect ourselves from them because evil is cold, it's unfeeling, and regularly and masterfully portray their motives and behaviors as innocent. And yet evil uses arrogance and mockery to escape being shamed. One abusive event maybe not make maybe not uh, make a person evil, but when it becomes a repetitive pattern with excessive disregard for others, this then is arrogance. And without a doubt, there is a significant inclination to evil. And unfortunately, there are evil people in our world, and we need the wisdom to be able to discern between them. Well, I'd like to ask a question. Is there a difference between trust and forgiveness? Yes, there's a big difference. Forgiveness is a gift we give to others. Trust is something that's earned. Forgiveness doesn't mean you keep a close friendship with the person who betrayed you. You forgive. You can forgive people even without receiving an apology. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, asked his father to forgive the men who had just nailed them up to the cross. When I extend forgiveness to someone who's offended me in some way, I'm the main beneficiary. Forgiveness literally frees the offended from emotional ties to the offender. Years ago, someone injured me profoundly through a series of intense threats. I forgave this person. Eventually, this person, over the course of years, apologized to me 15 times. I still forgave him, but the trust was never restored because the apologies were surface. He never explored the offense and the damage with me. He never told me specifically what he was apologizing for, even when I invited him to tell me. So how are we to relate to these three types of people? With wise people, talking always helps. Feedback helps. They know how to listen. With foolish people, talking with them does not help. They don't listen. So the appropriate way of relating to them is to stop talking. Set limits on the problem instead of trying to resolve things through talking. Limits are set with consequences. The purpose of consequences is for the fool's sake. Perhaps consequences may get them to turn things around. With evil people, they deserve the gift of defeat. One of the greatest gifts we can give a person inclined to evil is the strength, courage, and resolve to frustrate their attempts to dominate. Such strength, courage, and resolve must be full of cunning and precision because evil will never be defeated through rational arguments. Oh, those are good words, Dan. 
Now we've talked about how trust is built and how trust is broken. So what does the scripture say about how to build trust? But I want to invite you to one of the best examples in the scriptures, and that's in Matthew chapter 26. This is such an important story that it's in all four gospels, but we're going to look at Matthew's. Matthew 26 and verse 33 to 35. They're on the Mount of Olives, and uh, Peter, in, in this last supper here, is saying, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And uh, sure enough, Jesus' words came true. He did deny Jesus. Then after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter. Yes, Peter had betrayed his trust, but Jesus comes back and approaches him and asks him three times, do you love me? And three times he invited Peter back into service saying, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. What an amazing example of how to build trust again. Jesus had to deal with him directly about it. So he didn't just brush it under the carpet, as it were, and forget about it. No, he actually came and talked to Peter directly about all three of them. And Peter responded with contrition. And his rashness and his bravado was all gone. And he realized that he needed to be shaped and different than how he approached with Jesus. And he recommitted and Jesus recommitted to him, and the reconciliation happened, and trust was restored, and Peter became a great leader in the church. Now, that's an example of Jesus coming and restoring someone who betrayed the trust to him. Now, what do you do if you are the one that's betrayed the trust? How do we do this? How do we build trust back again? Well, it takes a couple of things. First of all, take some really deep introspection to figure out from your heart and your mind, why did you do this? What is at the root of you that would make this happen and allow the Holy Spirit to deal with some of those deeper issues? But then the second thing is you need to approach the person that you broke trust with and you need to apologize for what you've done and do it sincerely not trying to blame them for what they did and you know try to balance thing, everything out no just talk about your part the part that god's convicted you about and apologize sincerely and depending on the severity of the break you might need a third person present to help bring balance or accountability to the conversation that's there and if you're going to build trust with this person it's required that there be no gap between what you do and what you say, you're going to have to earn it back by consistent behavior. Well, I have a cousin named Joni who has given me permission to share her story that proves trust can be rebuilt. She met her eventual husband, Mark, in high school, married him 1980. 14 years and two children later, they went through an ugly divorce. 21 years following their divorce, 
after a lot of very hard work involving counseling, rehabilitation, restitution, forgiveness, this couple pledged their love once again till death do we part, just five years ago. Here's Joni and Mark with their children and grandchildren at their second wedding. This so reminds me of Joel chapter 2, verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. God truly can restore broken trust. So what's God prompting you about? What do you need to do to become a more trustworthy person? When we allow the light of Jesus to shine into us, he can reveal to us where we have broken trust. How can you be a more safe person to be around? Is there someone you need to apologize to, to be transparent with? How will you change your behavior? Are you willing to earn back the trust you've lost? It won't be a quick fix, neither will it be a guaranteed fix, because the other person will wait and see if the change is real. This is the kind of transformation God wants to bring to us and our relationships so we can better love God and love others. This makes the restoring of trust real. Jesus said that's why he came to earth, to restore, to give life. When Jesus was on the cross, each of us were on his mind. He didn't know, we didn't know what we were doing, and he still forgave us. What does Jesus think when we've messed up our lives? He's like the father in his story of the prodigal son. He's just waiting for us to come back. Even though the prodigal son said, just let me be your servant. The father replied, no, I've forgiven you. Let's have a party. Jesus waits for you to come to him. He will not judge you for messing up. He will forgive you and welcome you into his family. Please pray with me. Father God, we pray for um, each person watching this, listening to this. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to look in the mirror and examine our hearts and give us the courage and resolve to talk with people that we need to, to break that don't talk rule, to break the don't feel rule, and to break the don't trust rule. Lord, help us uh, to trust each other to have these kinds of conversations that we need. And I pray for your work of grace in our hearts, that you will cleanse us, change us, and make us into be trusting people. In your name we pray. Amen.